We're beginning a series on 1 Peter today, and we're actually just looking at one verse. So welcome to Revolve. Um, we're looking at one verse today. We're actually going to be in 1 Peter for about the next 15 weeks. Um, and uh, I wanted to begin today by just pointing out the obvious. Did you know that uh, the world is a mess? I don't know if you realize that. I don't know if you live under a rock. But the world is a mess. And the reality is, what I want you to understand is that there's actually a real threat to being in the mess. Um, for those of us who are um, existing, we know that when you feel like you're in a mess, like this past year, for example, you tend to feel out of control, right? And you feel like uh, you're, you're being crushed and you're powerless and you're cornered and you kind of feel like you're a cornered animal and you want to lash out and you feel defeated. And sometimes you even feel like you want to give up because you're so sick of it. And that's what happens when you feel like you're constantly in the middle of a mess. Can anyone relate to that reality? Kashi was like, amen. <laughs> Preach it. Doug, I don't know what you do at home, but that was enthusiastic. Um, but it, it, is a, it is a threat. Jesus put it this way in, in Matthew 13 when Jesus tells the parable of the sower. Um, speaking of the third type of soil, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 22, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word. It proves unfruitful. In other words, if I can paraphrase, the mess of the world chokes out the fruit. In other words, all of the stuff in life going on acts as the distraction, and you focus on that instead of fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And so the fruit gets choked out. That's what Jesus says. That some, I know that some believers get so overwhelmed with the mess of life, the tyranny of the urgent, that they never bear the fruit God wants them to bear. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And for those of you who are new to Revolve, Revolve exists to glorify God by multiplying disciples, groups, churches to the ends of the earth. That's what we desire. That's what we hope for. We don't care if anybody knows our name. We just want to see disciples made, multiplied, and unleashed. And as disciples who want to multiply until the whole world hears, that means focusing too much on the mess can be catastrophic for God's designed job that he's given to you and entrusted to you. But the problem is what? You can't escape the mess. The mess is here. And courtesy of our modern world, it's being thrust in front of your face at all times by clever algorithms that want to keep you focused on everything but Jesus. So what do we do? Well, 1 Peter 1.1 begins in this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's all we're looking at today. <laughs> so we're going to break this down because we want to introduce this book as we go and explain in the coming weeks. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is basically modern-day Turkey. So who's Peter. Well, some of you uh, may have read the New Testament before, read the Bible before. If you have not, I highly suggest it. 
And um, in the Gospel of Luke, we see an account of Peter's calling, or when Jesus first invites Peter to come and follow him. And it goes a little bit like this. Peter is a fisherman, and he fished all night long unsuccessfully. He had no fish, although that's what he depends on for his livelihood. And then he gets in in the morning, and he's tending his nets and repairing his nets and all that kind of stuff. And this itinerant teacher named Jesus comes, and he starts teaching. And there's crowds gathering, and Peter's kind of listening, also tending his nets. And the crowds start to increase. And so Jesus says to Peter, can I stand in your boat and teach from your boat so the crowds don't come all up on? And Peter's like, whatever, bro. And so Jesus goes, and he's teaching in the boat. And after he's done teaching, what happens is uh, Jesus, who's a carpenter, by the way, uh, actually a builder, he comes to Jesus or comes to Peter and he says, Peter, I think you should go back out and throw the nets one more time. I'm an expert fisherman, right? And Peter, not wanting to shame this teacher, especially if there's people watching, uh, he says, we didn't catch anything, but if you say we want to go, we'll go. And it kind of makes you wonder, what did he do? Did he go out like five feet and he was like, net, you know? <laughs> what did he try to not make sure it didn't come unfolded as he threw it in the water? So he does that. He throws out the net, and they pull in so much fish that it feels like the boat is going to sink. And so what does Peter do? Does he turn to Jesus and say, I can't believe you were right, and high-five him? No. He falls to his knees, and he says to Jesus, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Because in that moment, um, Peter realizes that Jesus is unique, and he's different but Jesus puts his hand on Peter's shoulder, and he says, Peter, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. So Peter follows him. That's the calling of Simon. His real name is Simon. He calls him Peter. Well, when did he become Peter? Well, in Matthew chapter 16, what happens is that Jesus turns to his followers, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they start answering, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon says, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the promised rescuer, the anointed one. Christ isn't his last name, by the way. You're the anointed one. You're the rescuer, the promised Messiah, the one that all of the prophets and the law pointed to and said, this one is coming, and he's going to save. He's a greater son of David. He is the one we're waiting for. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my father. He revealed it to you. And he says, and, and upon this rock, I will build my church. He calls him Peter, and then he does this play, Peter, word for Petros, word for rock. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. My, I will gather my people. I will call out my people. Jesus essentially is saying that the early group of believers, the early church, would be built upon the rock of Peter's confession, but also his leadership, because Peter becomes a leader among that early church. Not like the Pope, but he becomes a leader in that early church. And I want you to realize that this is important for us because it is through people that the kingdom goes forward, not through institutions, not through organizations, not through superstars. It comes through people, people like Peter. And you say, well, yeah, but Peter was pretty awesome. Like he was an apostle. Yes. But what was Peter before? He was a fisherman. We already established that. We know he was uneducated, and I'm not inferring that. I'm saying that's what they actually say in Acts because Peter is preaching, and the Pharisees, who are really smart and they study, they say, who are these uneducated men who are wowing us and speaking so boldly? And so Peter was a fisherman. He was uneducated. We also know he was impulsive. 
um, Peter was frequently putting his foot in his mouth. My personal favorite is when Peter is on Mount Hermon during what's called the Transfiguration, when Jesus is seen in all his glory, and Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter's like, we should make some tents. Three tents, Jesus, right? And I love how God interrupts him, and God's like, this is my son. Listen to him, not to Peter. I thought that, Ryan thought it was funny. (laughs) He was impulsive. You know how many times Peter would say things like, even if everybody else runs away, I'm not going to run away. I would die for you. I would definitely stand up before anybody else, unless it's a teenage slave girl, which is who he cowers before after Jesus is arrested. And so not only was Peter impulsive, but he was a little bit of a coward too. Not only that, did you know that one time Jesus called him Satan, which is the word for adversary. That's all Satan means, the adversary. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of the flesh, not the things of God. This is who Peter is. Fisherman, uneducated, impulsive, a Satan, scared of a little girl, but he's a sinner saved by grace. He's forgiven. He's restored. See, the beauty of multiplication is not about superstars. It's about ordinary, uneducated, impulsive idiots being used by God because they're redeemed and changed and made into something new. Peter isn't special because he's awesome. He's used because he's willing. And God wants to use you too, just like Peter. Well, not exactly like Peter. He built the early church, but you get the point. In Acts chapter 1 through 10, we actually see um, Peter becoming a leader in the early church. He really is a, a rock among those early church that God turns this fisherman into a fisher of people. In other words, he evangelized and discipled in his first sermon ever in Acts chapter 2. He proclaims the gospel, 3,000 men follow Jesus. God uses this uneducated man to highlight the wisdom of God and the boldness of the spirit that flows through him. He takes his impulsive nature and it makes him bold in the face of danger and persecution and prayer. When he walks up to a man, he says, I don't have any money, but I'll heal you. And he just pulls him to his feet. I mean, that's bold impulsiveness that God redeems for the glory of Christ. God took his failings and he turns it around and he leverages it for courage and a desire to keep failing forward for his king. See, Peter's a weak man who became a strong man in the grace of Jesus. And so Peter has things to say to us, and he has the credibility to say it because we can relate to him, can't we? He was also an apostle. He says, Peter, an apostle. What is an apostle? Well, there's actually three uses of that word apostle in the Bible. There's big A apostle. There weren't capital letters in Greek, but in English, we have big A apostle, and that's people who wrote the Bible, okay? That's the New Testament guys who wrote the Bible. Those are apostles. That's not to be confused with apostolically gifted people, or we might say spiritual entrepreneurs, right? Missionaries, church planners. That's spiritual entrepreneurship. That's uh, a gifting, an apostolic gifting, as opposed to an office of the apostle, But the word apostle at its most basic level just means to be sent with a message. It's actually a synonym for the word ambassador. And so there's also a sense in which 
all believers, all true believers, according to 2 Corinthians, are ambassadors. They are apostles sent with the message of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus died for your sins, according to the scripture. He was buried, according to the scripture. And then he rose again, and he's coming again. And so if you proclaim that good news message, you are functioning in an apostolic role. Now, there are no more original apostles. Bible is closed. There are people who are apostolically gifted, but all of us are sent with a good news message that Jesus died to save sinners. And so you can relate to Peter because he's a person just like you, but also you have an apostolic role, even though you didn't write the Bible, by the way. But what Peter has to say is directly applicable to your life. But he's also writing To whom is he writing? Well, he's writing to the elect exiles in Diaspora or in the dispersion of these five little towns. One thing you need to know as we go through the the, uh, epistle, epistle just means occasional letter, by the way. In other words, he wrote this letter for a purpose. One thing that we know about the epistle of Peter is that he references the Old Testament a lot. And so for those of you who haven't studied the Old Testament, maybe you're not students of the Old Testament, There are times when you might feel like things are going over your head. That's okay. We're going to explain those things. And don't be discouraged. You just keep reading the Word of God, and you will get better at it, okay? And we encourage you to come to any of us, and we'd love to show you how to do that if you're new to reading the Bible. But there's three things that we see here, which are Old Testament concepts, which then Peter applies with new meaning, kind of expanding them. Not eliminating the previous meaning, but expanding the meaning. Elect, exiles, diaspora, okay? Elect refers to Israel being the chosen people of God for his special purposes. We see that in Deuteronomy 7, among other places. I'll just read Deuteronomy 7. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen, that's that word, chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh the king. And so, as with much of the Bible, the Old Testament is true and real, but it also becomes a spiritual object lesson in the New Testament for something that Jesus wants to explain to us, as he does now, the Spirit of Jesus teaching through Peter. Now, I know, I'll tell you why I know that he's applying new meaning to this, because 1 Peter is what's called an encyclical letter. And that's just a really fancy way of saying the letter was passed around, okay? It's actually being passed around these five regions that we read in, well, the first verse and the only verse we looked at, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's being passed around these towns. But the issue is this. These are not Jewish towns. They're not even Gentile, that means non-Jew. They're not even Gentile towns with a strong Jewish population. These are Gentile towns. In other words, the primary audience of Peter's letter is not Jews elect, but it's Gentile believers. So there's a sense in which Peter is not eliminating the, the initial definition, but expanding it to say that The term elect in this new covenant is all of God's chosen people. 
that who become his people by faith. This is the people of God. This is in line with what Paul writes in the book of Romans. That this isn't limited to ethnicity or to previous creed or any other human factor, but it is by grace, by faith. By faith, we become children of Abraham. That's what Paul argues in Romans. By faith, a people who were not a people became a people. That's what's prophesied um, in the book of Steve. Hosea. I couldn't remember. But I got it. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, Steve. <laughs> All believers are God's chosen people. And so Peter's explaining that when he says, to my elect exile. So what's the deal with exile? Exile in the Bible typically refers to the exile from the promised land. Again, if you're new to the scriptures, the idea is that the Jews were given a, a law code a covenant called the Mosaic Covenant given by Moses, the Ten Commandments. And God said to them, if you break this, you will be removed from the promised land, Israel, where they lived. And that was called the exile. They broke that, that law for a long time, and eventually God exiles them, removes them from the promised land, and he scatters them to the ancient Near East. And that process, that concept is called the exile. And so that is the, the main thing that we see in the Old Testament. But there's also another exile which Peter is referring to. And that's the initial exile. Anybody know what the first exile was? Genesis chapter 3. When God exiles Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, essentially exiling humanity from his presence. And humanity has been exiled from his presence in some form ever since that point in time. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, mankind has been exiled from the presence of God. In other words, they're waiting to go home. And we say, well, what are we waiting for? Where do we go after we die? Well, we go to heaven. That's like kind of the Sunday school answer we give. But heaven is not this place with clouds and harps and little fat chubby babies. Actually, what we see at the end of the Bible the final revelation of Christ, the, the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, we see the end of all things is actually a recreating of the space where the heavens, the spiritual realm, and the earth overlap completely like it was in Eden. In other words, we finally get to go home to Eden. We finally get to go home to Eden. But this is the point. Today, you're exiled this, you are exiled. You are waiting to return home. Now, one of the things that parents, I want you to talk about with your kids this week is, you know, I want you to discuss. So parents, you are kids. Hey, kids, they're all the kids. Look at me. If your parents forget this, you got to remind them. I want you to talk about with your parents what makes our home our home. What makes your home your home? What makes it unique? What it makes it, is it where it is? Is it your bed? Is it your toys? Is it your stuffed animal? Is it the, the fact that, you know, it's just, it, it kind of smells like your dog? You know, what makes it your home as opposed to somewhere else? See, where's a home for a son or daughter? It's with their family. Where's a home for a prince or a princess but the kingdom of their family? We live as exiles in this world until we go home with the Lord. And that will not happen until death or until Jesus comes back and recreates all things. 
And so what do we do while we're here in exile? We wait. Just like they did in the Old Testament. We wait for our finally home, but we don't wait with idle hands. No, we wait with hope, and we bring as many adopted brothers and sisters with us into our new home. Because guess what? Jesus said, I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. We're waiting to go home. Guys, this earth is not your home. It's not going to satisfy. It's always going to feel like you're exiled. And then the third term, diaspora or dispersion. Diaspora is similar to exile, but a little different. See, in Peter's day, the exile was actually over. See, but what happened was they were exiled. They lived in Babylon. They lived in these different areas. And then when the exile was done, God said, go back. And some of them said, I have a nice garden here. I don't really want to go back. And so they stayed. So there was Jews in Rome, there was Jews in Turkey, there was Jews in Greece, there was Jews all over the ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean world living in diaspora. The exile was over, but they still never actually returned. They never regathered. They were scattered. Of course, we know the Jews are still scattered. And they won't be regathered completely until the great revival of Jews happens at the coming, at the end of days. But that's not what Peter is referencing. What Peter is referencing is the fact that you too, as believers, as elect exiles, you currently live not just as exiles waiting to go home, but you live in dispersion, don't you? Believers are exiled, but also dispersed. We are dispersed all over the world waiting until the final regathering. Isn't it interesting then that the word for church actually means gathering? That right now we are the gathering of God's people in diaspora, waiting for the final regathering, which will not happen until we are in our home, the new Jerusalem together, when finally the main ecclesia will be finished. We will finally be gathered completely. See, we experience a type of gathering, but we're just a pocket of diaspora. It's not the fruition of our ultimate regathering until we're with the Lord. And so what is the point of all of this? Glad you asked. Peter is writing to you too. Elect exile in diaspora because that is your reality. You are an elect exile currently in diaspora waiting to go where? Home. And so why did Peter write 1 Peter? Because he wants you to know how to live in the mess when you're not home. You're a refugee. Now, your house might be nicer than the tent that they live in in Caratempe on the island of Lesbos, but that's who you are. More specifically, Peter wants to give his readers, he wants to give us a source of encouragement in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the mess, because things started to get gnarly in Peter's day. They actually started to get gnarly before Peter's day. We see Jesus saying, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So don't be shocked when they hate you. They hated me first. Jesus warned them of that. But we see that continue throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. 
We see that we see it when Stephen is stoned to death. And Paul, or Saul, who's going to become Paul, stands there and applauds. We see it as Saul, he gets papers from the Jewish leaders to go um, to Damascus so he can round up all of these Jews who have forsaken their faith and they've come, into believe, they've come to believe in Jesus Christ and he wants to round them up so he can kill them. We see this in the, uh, in the late first century when Emperor Nero despises Christians so much that he would put them on stakes and light them on fire and use them as torches for his garden. And then he burned down a large portion of, the, of Rome and blamed it on Christians. Though historians say it had nothing to do with Christians, it was because he wanted to expand his palace. Because once that whole area was burned out, you know what he did? He had it excavated, and then he expanded his own house. But Christians were a good people to blame. The Apostle John was boiled alive in a vat of oil and lived. Peter was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die the same death as his Savior. If anybody knows something about surviving, living in a mess, and keeping your eyes focused on the future grace, the hope of Jesus Christ, when we finally are not elect exiles in dispersion, but we get to go and be home finally, completely, in glory, it's Peter. And so what does this mean for us? The world is quite tumultuous. Do you want to know why? Because it's a mess. It won't be a mess forever, by the way. When is the mess going to stop? When Jesus burns it down, okay? Like, I don't know what else I can say to you. The house is a mess. This house is a mess until Jesus burns it to the ground, and then he rebuilds a new home. See, this is not your home. You are in exile here. You are a pilgrim. You are a traveler passing through as you go towards the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Eden. And so what does that mean specifically? It means a few things. One, don't expect this mess to satisfy the deep longings of your heart. Because you're hoping for a different home. Your dream home, it doesn't exist on this earth. It's going to need new siding. It's going to get a leak in the roof. You're waiting for a better home. And so you can't expect this mess to satisfy you. Two, don't get too worked up about the mess. Expect it. You know, if, you, if your job was a uh, professional toilet plunger, right? That's what you did for a living, like all day long. You went from house to house just plunging toilets that couldn't be plunged by mere mortal hands. Your hands were the ones that could plunge those toilets because they were that bad. You wouldn't arrive at a house and say, I can't believe it. Like, look what's in this toilet. No, you would expect it. It's your job, Okay. It is your entire existence. If you work in a sewer because you're a ninja turtle, you're not going to be shocked that the sewer is a mess. You expect it. It's your reality. Listen, guys, this is not our home. Don't you feel like a, a foreigner in your own land even more and more every day? Should that sh surprise us? No. Heaven is our home. Don't get too worked up about the mess. 
Don't get too distracted by your temporary. Wait for the future. Don't be like the Jews who got so distracted in Babylon that when the exile was over, they didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay. See, this week, when the mess starts to bother you, because it's kind of like, it's almost like, I don't know what's going to happen this week. <laughs> like, I don't know whether it's terrifying or kind of funny at this point in time. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. Maybe we should start a betting pool, make some money off it. <laughs> but when the mess starts to bother you, take a step back. And remember, this isn't your home. It's not your home. It's never going to be what you want it to be. It's never going to satisfy you the way that you want to satisfy you. It isn't worth investing all of your energy into the temporary. Instead, invest in the unseen, eternal, your future home. Build that home. Don't be bothered by the mess. Expect it. You have a future home. It's a wonderful home. And I believe that all of the temporary struggles are not worth comparing to the insurmountable weight of glory that is to come. So why does God leave you in the mess? Why not just come to faith and die and get it over with? Because you have a future wonderful home. But if you look around this world, and maybe even in this room, there are people who will be born in the mess, live in the mess, die in the mess without any hope. But you have hope. And because you have hope, they have hope too. Because you can share that hope with them. What a wonderful hope we have to share in the midst of a messy world. And the messier the world gets, the better our hope looks, doesn't it? Think about that. The messier our world gets, the brighter our hope burns. I want to leave you with just two verses to consider, and then we're done. Yep. Hebrews eleven thirteen. All of these died in faith, the heroes of old. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised to them in this world, as parentheses, but having seen them, they greeted them from afar. They knew it was coming, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, what does that mean? I like how it reads in the New Living. All these people died still believing that God, what God had promised for them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. And they all agreed that on this earth, they were what? Foreigners and nomads, exiles. Jesus put it this way in John 16. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, hope is. Biblical hope doesn't mean wistful thinking. Oh, I hope that I... Whatever. Hope is a bring-it-to-the-bank guarantee and eager expectation of what is to come. In Jesus, despite the mess, we, as God's people, as the elect exiles in dispersion, have unshakable hope. 
And Peter is going to spend this entire epistle explaining why we have hope and how that hope should impact our lives today. So we have something unique for you guys. We strategically chose 1 Peter for a reason, because on Right Now Media, parents, I'm talking to parents, on Right Now Media, there is um, a really great resource called 1 Peter, From Where Does Hope Come From, put out by Phil Vischer, who's the guy who made VeggieTales. And they're like little nine-minute family devotions that you can do with your kids. And we even broke down the structure of the next 15 weeks exactly in line with the same pace that Phil Vischer goes through 1 Peter. And so everything we talk about, you're going to be talking about the same passage with your kids at home. And so you'll see some of those sample questions that are on the back of your paper, an activity for toddlers, questions for discussion with grade schoolers, because the bottom line is this, guys. We are not re-signing our lease. And so if you're just waiting for kids' space to come back, you better figure out how to do family discipleship because it's your job anyway. And so we're going to make it our goal to try to equip you to do it well. But you are responsible for your kids. I don't know how I can say it any more directly than that. And so we are going to do our best to equip you. And if you have suggestions on how we can improve, we welcome the suggestions because we are all failing forward at this point in time. But guess what? Embrace the mess because there's hope on the horizon, okay? Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would direct us, God. Lord, I'm sorry that I went a little bit longer, that we're not going to have the same amount of time for discussion, God, but I pray that discussions would happen in the car and that we wouldn't just punch the clock on our brains as we leave this room. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be chewing, you would be bringing to our minds things to chew on, Lord, and that we would be able to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Lord, as we see mess this week, whether that's personal mess, family mess, whether it is societal mess or global mess, let us remember all the more that Jesus is better and the hope we have is on the horizon. And let us proclaim that hope from a place of deep joy because we are liberated sons and daughters of the King. And this is not our home. Amen.